Hello, this is The Briefing. It's the 30th of July. How are you coping in this strange world we're living in? Many people who thought they were invulnerable, many people who thought they were bulletproof, will actually find they're vulnerable in this situation. In a moment, a conversation about mental health, which is important for all of us because it could affect you or certainly somebody you know. Good morning, Jan Fran. Good morning, Tom. Weren't planning any trips to Queensland anytime soon? Look, I wasn't, no, but I'm still offended that they've closed the border <laughs> to Sydney ciders. Yes, well, that ties in very closely with our first news story. That's right. If you are from Sydney, Greater Sydney, that is, and you are planning a trip to Queensland anytime after 1am this Saturday, you might want to reconsider that trip. Well, you have to reconsider. You do indeed have to reconsider because the Queensland government has declared Greater Sydney, all of Sydney, a hotspot, meaning... If you are one of the more than 5 million Sydney siders, you will be turned away at the border. This is unless you are a Queensland resident, which in that case you will have to quarantine for 14 days at your own expense. We do not want a second wave here. We do not want widespread community transmission. It is too important. We must protect Queenslanders. That was Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Queensland Premier. This comes after Queensland recorded three new cases yesterday which might not seem like a huge number, but it's the biggest rise in months. Two of the cases were the COVID-positive teenagers that snuck back into Queensland without quarantining. Let me say I'm absolutely furious that this has happened, that these uh, two people have gone to Victoria, have come back and have been given given to authorities misleading information. So the 19-year-old women had been holidaying in Melbourne, flew back via Sydney Uh, They spent eight days out in the community before testing positive, with one even working as a school cleaner, and one of their sisters is now infected as well, and that's how they got to three yesterday. Yeah, and the two women have both been fined $4,000, and police are just trying to figure out how they managed to get around the border rules and whether anybody asked them any questions about whether they'd been to Victoria in the last 14 days. But I think Queensland has is really employing an elimination strategy, isn't it? It's had extremely low numbers for many months now, uh, one case every few days, if that. Um, And the decision was made very quickly. It even caught the New South Wales Premier off guard. It would have been nice if she told me. There you go. She didn't even know. (laughs) Just give her a call. Yeah, my brother's wife was meant to be going up on the weekend. Yeah, I have have friends who were... For a hen's night and now can't go. No, I have friends who were meant to be seeing their newborn nephew. Very excited about that. Now they can't go. It's going to affect people. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I think a few months ago when Queensland were doing the tough border approach, a lot of people were like, why are you doing this? But now that we've had the second wave in Melbourne, a lot of people are more understanding of that tough approach. Now, did you see the viral video of that Melbourne COVID sceptic crossing a lockdown checkpoint? Have I committed a crime? No, today. Have I committed a crime? Oh, you can keep going. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes, that there was a woman named Eve Black. Very happy that she was able to bypass border security. She posted that video on her Facebook last week and somewhat unsurprisingly was slammed by pretty much everyone, I'd say, including Victoria's police minister. Well, let's be really clear. That footage shows an incredibly selfish person. Well, now there's an update on her case. Yesterday she was pulled over and again allegedly refused to give her name, address, the reason she was travelling or her licence. Police say that they then had to smash her car window to arrest her because she wouldn't get out of the car. Yeah, she's been hit with a few charges, including breaching current lockdown laws. 
Now, Victoria's cases were at 295 yesterday. That is the lowest that they have been in a week. Good but news. I, well, it's mixed news, I think, because we still saw nine deaths yesterday, uh, bringing the total deaths in Victoria to 92, which is more than the rest of Australia combined. So when I see videos like that, I'm filled with immense rage, you know, because there are people who are having to watch loved ones pass away on Zoom. You know, we spoke to someone yesterday whose mother is in an aged care home. They can't see their parents. And so when you are, you know, very flagrantly breaching regulations, it's infuriating. Yeah, well, one of the guys we spoke to yesterday will be burying his father tomorrow and a very limited funeral and said he was infuriated by people like this. And a special report looking at how much young Australians are earning has found that they are actually making less than they were a decade ago in real terms. The Productivity Commission research found that between 2008 and 2018, the average income for 15 to 24-year-olds fell by 1.6%. For 25 to 34-year-olds, it was around a 0.7% drop. It also found that 15 to 24-year-olds in 2018 had about the same amount of disposable income as someone back in 2001. But this is despite the increased cost of living in that time. Yes, and also the massive increase in house prices. Which I have very much noticed. (laughs) But here's the thing, all of this data was collected before the pandemic, so there were already issues there. I mean, the job market had become a lot more competitive for young people post the GFC. There was reduced welfare support in that time. Um, And we've seen young people go from full-time work to a lot of casual and part-time positions. So add to that coronavirus and, look, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it doesn't look good. Yeah, we've been hearing that news and we're just getting more and more data to prove it. Yeah, instead of uh, please don't stop the music, it's actually a case of please stop <laughs> please playing stop my the music. music. <laughs> so, yeah, Lord, Sia, um, Rihanna, they all want politicians in the US to ask before playing the music at their rallies, especially Donald Trump. Tune. Uh, they are among 50 artists who have signed an open letter that demands pollies get permission first. So in recent years, um, Donald Trump has been called out by a bunch of musicians, including the Rolling Stones and Pharrell, for doing this. Yeah, so the letter reads, being dragged unwillingly into politics in this way can compromise an artist's personal values while disappointing and alienating fans. Uh, with moral and economic costs, music tells powerful stories and drives emotional connection and engagement. That's why campaigns use it after all. But doing so without permission siphons away that value. I don't know how much power they have to actually stop Donald Trump from using their music at his rallies. Well, if they're having to write a letter like that, it sounds kind of a bit weak, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, who who's left for Donald Trump to play at his rallies? Kid Rock? There well, you go. He it- can play Kid Rock. The thing is, he can basically play whoever he wants. Like, all these artists have been trying to get him to stop, and in some cases, his campaign managers have agreed to stop playing it. Basically, they can get around the whole licensing question by playing the music using the venue's license. So they might have a carve-out in their licensing agreement for political campaigns, but if he's holding the rally at a stadium, which can play whatever it wants on its basic generic licensing agreement, then... 
off they go. I mean, I think this is, you know, a strong statement and probably only that. You know, and it's the same thing that artists have done here in Australia. Jimmy Barnes did it in 2015 after Reclaim Australia played his song. He came out and said, I do not align with the values of these people, but in the end couldn't really stop them. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a strong statement. I'd call it a statement. A statement. That's very diplomatic. It's words. All right, we'll catch you tomorrow, Jan. Uh, Annika's jumping in as we talk mental health. How are you coping at the moment? I think there's a lot of a lot of pressure just to get on with our lives, but it's really not that easy. And what about the people around you? If you think about the people in your life, how, how are they doing at the moment? Because this year has been a nightmare for so many of us. None of us saw this coming. And a lot of us thought this whole pandemic might be over by now, but it's not, particularly the economic side of things. And the pain of the pandemic could actually last for years, even if this medical emergency ends quite soon. On average, eight people tank their lives in Australia every day, which is such a full-on statistic. And we've heard that the pandemic could push that number up. Now on this briefing topic, we can actually reveal how much that number could go up by. Yeah, there's some new research which is being released today from Sydney University's Brain and Mind Centre and it predicts that under a best-case scenario, suicides will actually go up by 14% over the next five years. That's an extra 2,500 deaths. Yeah, and that modelling didn't even look at the impact of this second wave hitting Victoria right now. But still, the worst-case scenario suggests that the suicide rate could jump by 18%. So how do we stop that from happening? Professor Ian Hickey is the director of the Brain and Mind Centre. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. We spoke to you in April and you told us the mental health and economic impacts would be bad. But to see these numbers you're predicting, potentially more than 2,500 extra deaths over five years, it's really sobering. These are very alarming figures, Tom, and they reflect the reality of recessions and then the very difficult situations we're now in with the COVID-19 crisis of social isolation, disruption of education, and really having a health system, a mental health system that will struggle to cope with the resulting increased demand. So what's the actual chain of events that goes behind these these numbers of people that maybe end up presenting to emergency self-harming or even tanking their own lives? Are these people that already had mental health problems that were then exacerbated by this medical and economic crisis, or is it actually triggering new problems for people? The reality is both, Tom. So in a recession of of, of this magnitude and social dislocation of this magnitude, there are many new cases of people developing anxiety, depression, related alcohol and substance abuse, and importantly, suicidal ideation and behaviours. They're people whose jobs have been really disrupted. They fear they're going to lose their jobs. They're in financial trouble, personal trouble. Their education's been disrupted and they become very psychologically distressed with the fear of what will happen next and the disruption to their lives. Additionally, those who already have mental health problems already have problems with employment, with their financial status, with social isolation, find their situation exacerbated and often disconnected from care during these times. So both groups, particular work overseas, suggest it's the former that those who've never had problems before, who suddenly find themselves in trouble, aren't connected to care, are probably the group that are at the biggest risk. 
Ian, we know that young people and also women have been the most affected by uh, losing their jobs and, and by the sort of impacts of the recession. Is that the same group that's being hit with mental health? Are these figures like easy to match up in that way? This is a very important point, Annika. Over 50% of jobs that have been lost have been lost by women, 45% by young people. Casual workers, those rely on casual work, particularly in hospitality and tourism, those in the education sector, those in some other industries like aviation, have been particularly affected. And this is important because unless our national employment programs, education programs, social programs talk to those groups, they are the ones who become most psychologically distressed and therefore are at risk of suicide and other related behaviours. You've looked at some of this through your latest studies, some of the research into what actually could be done, and it almost gives a roadmap, a policy roadmap. So in terms of addressing those issues, say with young people, what's the most effective way to reduce either self-harm or hospitalisation or suicide rate? You've got to reduce the number of people who become extremely psychologically distressed and actually formally develop anxiety or depressive disorders. And to do that, number one for the whole population are employment programs. Now, in Australia, that's essentially JobKeeper, not actually losing your job or fearing that you're going to lose your job. That's quite different to job seeker. It's once you've lost your job and you're receiving welfare payments, that's important, but actually not losing your job in the first place. The social connection, the regularity, your sense of identity, your career is most important. For young people, the road to employment is education. So the most important thing for young people is staying in education. And that includes in the vocational education and training sector, the so-called VET sector, but also importantly in the university sector, which has been very sadly neglected during this particular issue. We're going to see loss of jobs for reasons that are totally inexplicable to me. It has to be budget neutral. And we're actually seeing increasing costs of education being transferred to young people in that sector. So education programs and connection for training and careers is critical for young people For casuals, for women and others, it's security around jobs. And of course, many of them have been excluded under the current JobKeeper arrangements. Ian, we want to thank you to a personal story. Jessica's a mother of two. She's had anxiety for many years, but it's been exacerbated recently. Um, Along with the general stress of the pandemic, her husband lost a job, her dad got diagnosed with cancer, grandfather died, lost a friend to suicide, and even her two-year-old daughter was recently rushed to hospital with respiratory issues. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. We, we know you've struggled with anxiety for a long time. How bad was it before the pandemic and, and all the tough things you've been through recently? Before the pandemic, I think I was definitely able to manage it um, sort of on my own doing you know, exercising, healthy eating, talking to loved ones and and things like that. But uh, this year it's definitely reached a new height. Um, I was just at a point where I couldn't cope on my own anymore. I was just so concerned about the future and um, worried for my children and our family um, with our situation. And, um, yeah, my husband had to take me to the doctor to to get help because I just couldn't do it on my own anymore. It was it was definitely at a new level. Jessica, what were some of the triggers you started to notice that I guess took it from something you thought you could manage to needing to seek medical assistance? Yeah, I was just so on edge over the smaller things. Um, everything that would pop up, I just felt like I couldn't. I'd, I'd go to worst case scenario. Um, I'd think, oh, this is bad. This is going to happen. Um, um, 
and I'd end up in tears and I could feel that tightness in my chest. Um, whereas before I'd be worried and I'd think about things, but I could move on. I could live my day-to-day -day life, whereas this would absolutely consume me. And I, I couldn't even laugh with my, my children. I'd just be so fixated on what was on what was going on in my head i just couldn't cope by myself so you sought help uh, at the doctor what what happened there and and what what are you doing now to deal with your anxiety so basically i reached a point where i was literally in my room just hysterical my husband came in and said yeah, I think we really need to go to the doctor. And I needed someone, I needed someone to hold me accountable and, and take me. It's really hard, I think, to take that first step yep. um, because you think I'll be fine, I'll get through this, I'll get over it. But it, it is an illness. So we went to the doctor and um, it was even just talking to my doctor, I already felt like a weight was lifted off my shoulders um, just to know I'm not having to do this alone there is that support and she was incredible and she said this is unfortunately so common at the moment. Um, a lot of people are going through a lot. Um, so she basically, um, we did tests and blood tests to make sure it wasn't other things but it was decided that I'd be better off on medication and talking to a psychologist, uh, which I have been doing both for a couple of months now and I've never felt more more at ease within myself and I you know I can laugh with my children again I know that everything will be okay eventually and I can get through things and it, it's just helped me so much um, to be able to breathe. Jessica great to hear you've found um, ways of coping I think that'll be encouraging to a lot of people thanks for speaking to us on the briefing. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. That was Jessica. Um, great to hear she's been able to turn that around. Ian, what do you make of that story? Very important story, Tom. And it tells you how many women are at the heart of families and managing multiple issues. And this whole set of circumstances is a series of straws that breaks the camel's back. Good about Jessica's story is getting help. And I must say getting effective help. No good to just ring a helpline or be told to make an appointment and not see someone or not receive effective care. So part of the solution here, really the circuit breaker to save lives, becomes effective care for those who are unwell on an ongoing basis. Obviously, there's a concern um, that both the pandemic and the economic impacts will have a huge effect on the mental health of Australians, but we don't know how long this pandemic or recession will last. When you were doing your research, how did you sort of estimate how long the effects of this could affect Australians into the future? It's such an important point, Annika, because we are using the Reserve Bank and Treasury forecasts about how long they think the economic situation will last. But the mental health effect will last much longer. Once you've been injured by this particular unusual set of circumstances and developed an anxiety or depressive disorder or psychological distress or lost your job or lost your business or your marriage has fallen apart or developed an alcohol and drug problem, that persists. So we've modelled the impact of the economic changes to be about 18 months, but actually the mental health facts, effects last for at least five years. Now, you've raised a really important point. If this goes on, if it gets worse, and particularly if the pattern of recurrent lockdowns continues and more social dislocation, like we're seeing in Victoria right now, then actually the figures that we've actually shown in this particular report are likely to be an underestimate of the effects. So duration really matters, and it matters psychologically because chronic unresolvable stress is much worse 
than an acute event or an acute stressor, which people then cope with and respond to and often collectively do. None of us know where this goes next. And that's very uncertain times for all of us. And that not being clear about what the nation's going to do, what might happen to me, and not knowing where it might end is actually, from a psychological point of view, extremely difficult. It feels like here in the media, we, we talk about this stuff all the time, but someone might be hearing some of these messages about mental health for the first time right now. Just quickly, what should they do if they're struggling right now as they listen to this podcast? Tom, that is so important because many people who thought they were invulnerable, many people who thought they were bulletproof, will actually find they're vulnerable in this situation. When their job's on the line, their business is on the line, their marriage is on the line, they need to seek help early rather than late. And that's through our medical, GP, family services, psychological services, but to get effective care. So help someone who's in trouble to get care. If someone around you really is struggling with what is happening, help them to get to effective care as early as possible. So that's a GP in most cases to start with? In most situations, and for many middle-aged people, it's through their general practitioner and on to a psychologist or psychiatrist or set of services that they might require. For many young people to be through Headspace-type services, that are specifically for young people, and there are many additional services online now that can provide effective interventions, certainly for common forms of anxiety and depression that are supported by the federal government. So there's a variety of possibilities out there. Get to the ones that work and support the people around you, and hopefully if you're in trouble, they'll support you if you need help. Ian Hickey, great to speak to you as always. Thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Thanks so much. A really important message there from Professor Ian Hickey about accessing help if you need it. And if you are feeling overwhelmed or having difficulties coping or staying safe, you can call 13 11 14 for confidential one-on-one support with a trained lifeline telephone crisis supporter. Yeah, and you can get help online as well at headspace.org.au. They can help you find your nearest Headspace centre Or, as Ian was just saying, you can go and see your local doctor and they can help you access Medicare-funded counselling and potentially medication if that's what's right for you. All right, tomorrow on the podcast, we're going to call Karen. See what Karen has to say. It's been a weird week for Karen or Karens around the world. That's The Briefing. Speak to you tomorrow. A Podcast One production.